Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, tonight we have a two-hour block, a Fourth of July special. Uh, we got some. We're going to have in the second hour George Landworth rejoining us. Uh, and in this particular hour, I am joined by uh, not only the good Dr. Larry, but also John Burlow of the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the author of probably the best book on George Washington, George Washington, Entrepreneur, and we'll uh, more in due time. We're going to begin with this from Dr. Larry. Our first frontier is gone. Our lands are no longer wild. Our forests and mountains and deserts no longer tease with mystery and challenge. Our lands are tamed and hogtied with railroads and highways and air lanes, bundled up and ready to be sold, filled with people, plumbing and taming. Our mines are all discovered. Our fields are cities and parking lots. Our rivers are dammed and trees cut. Our next frontier now has come. This is not the challenge of our restless youth. Alas, the newest challenge is in the voting booth, where our people must be saved, saved before we forget our past, before our enemies crush our future into poverty and despair. Our cause is great and grand and godly against evil, against long lines of starving minds and idle hands of bleeding machines and men dehumanized by greed, but most of all against the godless ones who smear our clear vision and conquer us with caresses, who also trash our laws, who waste our work and treat our people like sheep. We must go now while we can still feel, while our long lungs can still tingle with the great air fresh and big from the open sea. While we can still stand and strain and struggle, while our sinew and courage can win and send our enemies slinking home in defeat. But the battle is now. Soon we will be bundled by useless laws and petty powers, tied held helpless like our tamed land, our fight and our spirit lying in the dust, squeezed out like toothpaste from its tooth by the bonds of our land and our enemy's iron fist. Yes, we must go now. Now is our last chance to win, for the battle has nearly been lost already. Our enemies pretend we do not exist. 
smug and snobbish in their lofty steeple, they do not believe the real Americans are gathering now to take back our land and our people. Take back our land of the free and our home of the brave. We the Americans who gave our soldiers lives for law and liberty. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. From sea to shining sea. We are coming, we are near. Our legions will fill the arena, leaving our enemies alone in fear. America's shining city will survive, our jobs and paychecks thrive, and we will keep in sacred trust our liberties and legacies alive. May God bless America, always. Amen. A, a wonderful rendition, and uh, the man who did that is Dr. Larry. Uh, welcome, Dr. Larry. And John, welcome as well. Thank you. Always good to be on, Tom. Yeah. Well, first of all, I guess, uh, John, what did you think of the opening of opening line from Dr. Larry? Very powerful. Uh, just words, words to remember. Um, this... Uh, this Fourth of July, as we you know we go back and we get some of our freedoms back from uh you know from, from the lockdown laws and things like that from the pandemic, but uh just you know eternal vigilance as uh Jefferson is supposed to have said is the price of is the price of liberty, and it's what Washington, who I wrote about in George Washington Entrepreneur and the other founding fathers fought for, yeah. All right, uh, Dr. Larry, your thoughts uh, on your own words? <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> I I hope I express my thoughts. Um, that uh, piece was actually written, uh, the original of it was written back in the, uh, in the, uh, w- way back in the, in the 20th century. And uh, then we revised it uh, somewhat uh during the Trump era, but uh, it seems equally uh, adept today because uh, our enemies really are in, are in charge at this point. So we've got to uh, we got to get on the ball, and we've got to make sure that that um, the uh, the play the place for. Uh, Domestic tranquility is uh, is re- is recovered, and the uh, and the peace and 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 prosperity that we uh, all hope for is uh, also uh, given a, a, a chance to to, uh, to happen. And I'm afraid that if we don't do something pretty quickly, that uh, we're going to lose our chance. So, and I also uh, I wanted to compliment George on the. Uh, uh, first of all, on the idea of uh, George Washington as an entrepreneur, um, I think I think that it, it, it's not a, a generally uh, uh, accepted or understood uh, uh, virtue of George Washington, but I think it's really, really uh, apropos at this point because the fact that he's a capitalist is is and an entrepreneur is really just uh, just as uh, important at this point 
than as the fact that he was a, a commanding general, because we're not, at this point we're still not at war uh, in the, in the physical sense, but uh, but the fact that that the uh, father of our country was also a very uh, active and uh, devoted and uh, uh, entrepreneur, I think, is 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 a, a good a good case study of the way we ought to uh, be thinking in terms of our entire our entire country. So John, I want to congratulate you again not only for the research but even for the idea of of um providing that kind of a uh, an idea and a perspective on the uh, father of our country. Thank you so much, Dr. Larry, for those kind words. And, yes, George Washington Entrepreneur, which is available online and in physical bookstores now that they're reopening wherever books are sold. If you don't see it, ask for it, published by St. Martin's Press talks about how George Washington was uh, among the first entrepreneurs and how this nation is rooted in entrepreneurs. He did uh, everything from whiskey distilling to uh, he basically trademarked, uh, put his own like uh, initials on the bags of flour he sold throughout the colonies and mule breeding, which, you know, breeding a horse and a donkey were the genetic engineering of its day, all these different things. He had reversals of fortune when, when he was growing tobacco and he realized that tobacco was was harming the soil and he could get a better price for like domestic goods like weed he completely changed around all the soil at mount vernon that he was there and he started out as a freelance surveyor in the gig economy of its day of his day originally mount vernon went to his older brother and he inherited some of it on upon his brother's death but he bought land around it and was largely a self-made man well, hold on to that thought, uh, John, and we're going to come right back to the Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files here on the 4th of July celebration special here on the Donaldson Files and also on the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want to get more, other, uh, listen other, to this podcast. 
the Bachelor News Airtime dot pro. Uh, yeah, the Donaldson Files, for example, you can listen to it at 10 a.m. Central Time every day, as well as uh, 3 p.m. Central Time. The Resistance Hour is uh, 1 o'clock Eastern Time, noon Central Time, uh, every day here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, Airtime.pro, Bachelor News Airtime.pro. All right, and now we're back to our program. And okay, John, uh, you there's so much you stated about you know just in those two minutes. But here's the first one: what inspired you to go in this direction with George Washington? Well, Mount Vernon, it's, which itself is a pretty entrepreneurial organization. I'm speaking there in, in person in September. I've already spoken there virtually. Um, rebuilt some of Washington's enterprises about 10 years ago, like his whiskey distillery and uh, the, uh, the flour mill. In fact, they make and sell whiskey now from Mount Vernon based on his old recipe. And I thought, you know, this is – I had revered George Washington, like most Americans, but really didn't know that much about him other than the face and the dollar, whereas, you know, you it seems like um, Franklin and Jefferson and now Hamilton are more relatable guys. Um, uh, so I thought this is a way of, you know, with um, so many Americans, men and women being entrepreneurs, this is a way, you know, people could, could relate to him and know more about him and how also how this country is rooted in entrepreneurship. So I wrote some articles for Forbes and National Review and then eventually um, uh, St. Martin's Press, Macmillan, uh, um, you know, picked, uh, decided to have me write a book about it. Yeah, well, here's yeah, you know, uh, but here's the thing uh, you know, that I find interesting about George Washington is that, you know, the, you know, it was an entrepreneur. I mean, he was a man ahead of his time. You know, we, you know, uh, maybe the way I'm going to put it this way, okay, when we think of the intellectual side of the equation of the founding fathers, you know, you think of Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, and in the case of the Constitution, you think of Alexander Hamilton and James Madison with the Federalist Papers, but we never get this feel, you know, other than, okay, he served as president, uh, he served as a general, but beyond that, other than he's always told the truth, and, uh, uh, but beyond, uh, but that's it, I mean, but, you know, when I read this book, and I have to say, uh, this one, I'm going to congratulate you in, in this regard, you know, rarely do you read a book about somebody like a George Washington and walk away and say, God, that's, I didn't know that. And about every other page, I found myself, God, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And it just seems to me he was ahead of his time. And let's kind of talk about the rotation of crops as a good example. I mean, this was ahead. I mean, this was not necessarily, as I understand it, common knowledge about agriculture that he was engaged in. Yes. I mean, he – he very much he knew he acquired land, but just kind of knew that that wasn't going to last forever. So he corresponded with some of the British agriculturalists of the day, um, you know, after the war with 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 Britain, like like Arthur Young, and just and just wrote about different things. So much so that when uh, the uh, some of the conserv- uh, some of the conservation programs were first started, they looked him in the 30s. They looked him out Vernon as an example of that. 
of conservation after the Dust Bowl and everything because of what Washington had did with the different types of things. And he was fascinated with things like manure and what type of manure would be for the best for the for the crops. And he had little boxes with different types of manure. So just all of those things. He wasn't uh, he got his hands dirty literally and figuratively as, as far as looking at the different types of types of things. And in yes, diversified his crop with wheats and. Uh, with weed and hemp and and you and all different kinds of of both flowers and 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 crops um uh, and and just I list some of them in the book and then he had a fishery with with the fish nets he made from uh, the hemp that he grew and that that caught just thousands of pounds of fish and then they used the fish guts for for, for fertilizer he really knew how to integrate his enterprises as well as you know having the wheat you being used to to make flour to be shipped around the colonies well i want you to know yeah. that uh that, that that tradition of uh of the manure is is uh is still in is still in practice we uh we just had a uh, uh a, a veritable procession of gardeners coming through our our stable for the purpose of uh, securing their uh Local compost, which our horses uh, uh, gratefully uh, provided, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's still going on. It, it it is. Um, um, I mean, there's a lot. People might say there's a lot of manure in politics, but the genuine <laughs> kind is 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 okay. What what it's like for le, for legitimate uh, uh, farming, and you know, far with you know, agro. There still are a lot of agro entrepreneurs like Washington. <laughs> well, yeah. it's, uh, it's 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 flowing hot and heavy down here now. <laughs> yes, I tell. I mean, Washington was just generally. You're you're so right, Tom. Far sighted, like he could sit. Like when he he welcomed French balloonists that they had hot air. They had invented the hot air balloon in the 1780s in France and welcomed some to America. And he and he he had a big ceremony in Philadelphia, which was in the capital for that for them. You know where they where they took off and 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 landed. And he wrote actually in a letter that um, uh, one day they may be coming to, to the U.S. from Paris by, quote, flying through the air. So he could even envision something like commercial air travel when there weren't even railroads. He, he was a generally, even though he was self-educated and his family, you know, couldn't afford the education that the families of Jefferson and uh, Madison could, he was, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, a far-sighted man. Yeah, uh let me, yeah, the other aspect, he also had an, did he not have an iron ore mine as well? His father, well, his father was an entrepreneur too, the, 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 um, uh, the August, um, uh, Augustine, um, uh, was, had a, had a, had iron, uh, had an iron ore, it was, uh, sort of a, a, a uh, it, had iron on his land and 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 yes did did uh did some of the did some of the smelting and ended up getting a share of a of a british of a of a british company and one of the things that motivated washington was when and then washington of course used iron like when he made things as as a as a blacksmith and horseshoes and knew the importance of iron for war and the british in addition to the taxes on uh uh the different taxes they were 
they were really clamping down on like colonial uh, colonial manufacture of, of of iron as far as even goods like horseshoes. They wanted they wanted the raw iron from from the from the the, the colonies, but they didn't want the colonies to compete with their manufacturers to make anything. It was the mercantilist system, so that was one of the motivation with Washington and other colonists. Uh, other colonists, he wrote to jo- Washington. Actually, wrote to George Mason is you know if they can tax me this way, can they take my factories? And he was thinking he was building up manufacturing enterprises and looking with alarm at what Great Britain was doing with some of the own other colonial manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, if I understand, I mean, kind of, first of all, explain very quickly mercantilism. Uh, for those who may not be familiar or who are not necessarily taught history correctly. <laughs> uh, so ahead. mercantilism, it's, it's a form of, it's, it's sort of everything. Uh, it's, it's a government promotion of, 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 indus, of, uh, of industry. It's, it's of, of favored industries. Like you, when you had the British East India Tate, uh, tea company subsidized by the government, it's limiting trade routes when the colonists, you know, could not, um, uh, you know, trade with anyone but but Great Britain, and they had to import from Great Britain. It's also discouraging competition in certain in certain sectors. And um, capitalism was a big revolutionary step. And there is, you know, it's almost certain. I, I put in my book, and others have have uh, have. Have have written this this too, although it's only a recent discovery that George Washington, as well as the other founding fathers, did read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations about why capitalism and the invisible hand and the individual entrepreneurs were a better way. So socialism really isn't revolutionary at, at all. It's just a new brand of uh, of mercantilism with the language of of uh, of equality, but. Um, uh, most mercantilism was a collectivism that that existed, you know, before the real revolutionaries like Adam Smith and the founding fathers, you know, established capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry, yeah, but what do you think? Yeah, well, I think I, I think mer- mercantilism is generally is government control of uh, or, or the I guess the uh, execution of government policy, particularly foreign policy, uh, for the benefit of, uh, of certain home industries. And um, it was really the uh, reason why so many of the European countries had uh, colonies in, uh, you know, in various parts of, the, of other parts of the world uh, from which we've been... Uh, essentially recovering now for the last uh, two or 200 years or so but um, you know when when we t- change the subject slightly but but when we talk about about uh, the fourth uh, of July and in the, the Independence Day of the United States uh, it's always in my my uh, my humble uh, perspective is that uh, the uh, real essence of the entire government of the United States I think is is uh, summarized when we talk about the uh, certain uh, rights that uh, human the uh, the citizens have certain rights among which are the uh, 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and uh, it always strikes me about the pursuit of happiness that that you know that's what we're all re- really would like to be doing, and 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 in some ways always are. And and the people that are trying to to limit our pursuit of happiness uh, on a macro level, anyway. Are are always uh, the uh, enemies of uh, life and leisure as well. It's uh, it's a it's a really novel. Th- it's not a novel thought at all, but it certainly is uh, an essence uh, that uh, of of the American the entire American dream. You know that we're free to pursue happiness, and 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 if we don't. If we don't have liberty, we can't pursue happiness. And if we don't have life, we can't have either liberty or or happiness. And um, and I think the, this whole idea that that uh, we begin this program today in in memory of the Fourth uh, of July and the independence of American American independence, with the uh, discussion of uh, George Washington is. Is very apropos because he pursued happiness uh, in in a, in a number of different uh, roles, including uh, not only military but also political and also uh, uh, entrepreneur and uh, farmer and so on. So um, the, um, uh, the I think that I think it's it's very it's very instructive to. Uh, to uh, explore the the many dimensions and the many roles of uh, George Washington and and how he was in fact in many ways the embodiment of uh, of the Constitution that uh, was written under his uh, uh, in his time. Now hold on, so, just to Tom Dawson, Dawson Files, uh, with uh, Dr. Larry and also with Don Burlow, the author of George Washington, Entrepreneur. You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here with our special guest, uh, John Burlow, who is the author of George Washington Entrepreneur here on our 4th of July special. A little bit later, we expect to hear from George Landreth, and we may even have a surprise guest or two. Uh, and, and, and Dr. Larry is, uh, is with us, so this is like the two-hour Donaldson Files resistance hour, two-hour block celebrating America. Hi, 
I want to kind of change subject a little bit here, and I want to kind of, uh, John, is there was another aspect, you know, know, dealing with, let's say, slavery. Point out in your book that, you know, George Washington himself, you know, started to have a change in slavery as an institution. Um, You know, you know, obviously, as you stated in your, you know, you stay in the past shows, he didn't. Uh, get rid of it in his lifetime. He didn't free his own slaves in his lifetime, but he certainly did afterwards. But he also mentioned that I, I think the word you once used was a lukewarm abolitionist. Well, he was so kind of talk about that framework of that change that occurred over his life to his very last act as a and as well freeing his own slaves and if I'm not mistaken, also provided them with income. Afterwards, yes, you're right about that. That's one of my favorite parts of of, of the book. Is that um, now, of course, slavery predated George Washington, both in the colonies um, uh, and in the in the uh, in the world. I think the African American scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. has said slavery it's slavery is as old as civilization itself. But this is what has made you know the founding fathers unique, and especially Washington, and what things like the 1619 Project and some critical race theory proponents miss is that this was the first really republic to proclaim itself being founded on you know universal human and and e- rights and equality under under the law. And Washington himself saw the change, and part of it was his entrepreneurship. He was able to see, like in both, you know, the the achievements of African Americans free and enslaved on the battlefield, but also seeing how blacks could, you know, his enslaved workforce um, could adapt to different roles, like say in the distillery and in the grist mill, and really saw in his in his and in, as he wrote in his letters that slavery was holding them back. So he would do. Um, various things like he wouldn't like since the late 18, 1770s he would refuse to break up slave families because he knew what what the damage that that could that could do and uh, and just um, also um, spoke out on, against it in different uh, in uh, um, in different letters and venues he knew that would be public. In fact, there was one public. St- uh, statement where in the Fairfax Resolve that he signed with George Mason, like a list of grievances against Great Britain, they described the slave trade as, as cruel and in, inhumane. And then upon, in his will, which was very public, I mean, people were talking about it in the early abolitionists reporting it to it at the time, um, he, he uh, commanded that um, all of the slaves in his possession uh, would, be fr- would be freed upon Martha's death and um as well as as well as the gentleman uh, William Lee who had served as his valet in the war would be freed immediately then Martha freed them one year later and he provided pensions for the older workforce and tried to provide for education for the for the younger for the younger uh, formerly for former slaves and uh, a good book by uh, Mary Thompson that came out as I was writing this so I didn't have this um, mentions the only unavoidable slave, uh, um, subject of regret um, she mentions that some of those formerly enslaved became entrepreneurs and founded some of the free black communities of Virginia. Um, you know, with the, the money and sometimes land that they had gotten from Mount Vernon. 
So he wasn't perfect. No human being is perfect, but he saw the error of this, how slavery was an evil system, and and moved away and moved the country away from it in his lifetime. Well, that's well he was a, he was a Virginian too, yeah. and that you know, had he been in Massachusetts, it would have been a lot easier. It was very very difficult to uh, figure out how you would uh, survive in 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 Virginia, uh, the colonial Virginia. Uh, as a, uh, if you were, uh, 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 what, what later we, we would have called an abolitionist, right? He was, he was, he was, he was born into the system. I mean, I think all of the founding fathers, um, you know, with things like the Northwest Ordinance, where they said these states are going to not have, sla- they set it up so that new states, I mean, at least some of the new states would not, would be, you know, would would be would be free, would not be, would, where slavery would be outlawed in some of the newer states. That, that really had never been done before, where you declare an area off uh, a new part, a section of your country off limits to slavery. And uh, Jefferson and Madison and Washington all worked on that, and that is as historian David McCullough has, has said, that 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 is an achievement that paved the way. Lincoln was able to point to point to that as far as as far as ending slavery, the motivations of the founding fathers there, and and the actions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I've been wanting to ask this question uh, since we started. What what um, what is your thought uh, uh, on? Uh, the Independence Day. Uh, how how would you express your uh, reaction to it? To Independence Day? Yeah. I mean, I would I would say you would you would you would celebrate it by just um, thinking about this this uh, you know doing fireworks and hot dogs and whatever suits you. I mean, um, even 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 working if that's you know because you're being. <laughs> You know, if you're being an entrepreneur, you're living the way George Washington did. But I, but I would say, yeah, you take some time and and you know and, and look up or or watch uh, or watch a movie just about the greatness of America and our founding and count your blessings as far as you know living in living in a great um, country and pledge to make it better. How do you think George Washington would have reacted to, uh, let's say? Uh, Let's say the uh, current president of the current administration. I don't think he would li- he would like a lot of a lot of the a lot of the policies. He was worried about inflation in his in his own time with with states uh, printing money. And I think and in general he warned about he had some early warnings say in his farewell address about the about the administrative state about agencies usurping. Uh, uh, the executive branch usurping the legislative branch in in making in making laws. So I think he would um, not like some of the things from the current administration as well as just the administrative uh, regulatory regulatory state. That's a good point. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's excellent. Here's that maybe here's the other aspect, and I wanted to because the, the one aspect about George Washington is that he. Like I said, was an entrepreneur, a man forward thinking, and maybe one of the things that, you know we look at America today, you know we have an what I call a leadership class that no longer you know, looks at the future, uh, but it's kind of like back into the past, or, or back. I mean, whether it's the Green New Deal, 
even if you look at the pandemic and how we treated the pandemic. Um, and if you look at, let's say, present economic policies, nowhere do you see the word, you know, you know, you know where is the wealth being created? Who, you know, because, you know, certainly you're taxing the wealth creators. You're taxing your entrepreneurs. Uh, and you're not, and you're basically looking to turn back the clock. You know, one of the, you know, you know somebody, you know, it's kind of like, think of it this way. The electric car is a hundred-year technology that lost out to the combustible engine for a reason. And wind and solar are things we used long before fossil fuels came on. I mean, this was the original uh, energy sources that we used long before you had fossil fuels or any sort of fuels. And and maybe that's what I think we're missing. You know, and certainly in George Washington's day, you know, he was a forward-thinking man. You know, have, you know, have we lost that, John? Is there something I don't think that we've, we've lost, lost that? that, but sometimes our, our laws and, and can, you know, uh, the American people have lost that, but sometimes our laws can ignore or discount that or put barriers in, in the way. I mean, actually, George Washington performed, did an experiment about with Thomas Paine, when Thomas Paine was his house guest during the Revolutionary War when they were in New Jersey, about uh, where they proved that, that, natural, that, that natural gas was causing, uh, was causing fires on, on a river and the natural gas had these properties. It's considered one of the first scientific experiments in America that I write about in George Washington, Entrepreneur. So he would be fascinated. He already knew, you know, that, that you know, it could set natural gas, could set, the wa- could set water on fire. And so he think he would be just uh, see it as a natural progression for, for, a force of, for a force of energy. Oil, too. I mean, oil is natural. It comes from the ground. But this was sort of applying it in a new way, in the same way he would apply, like, different types of manure in a new way or mix a or mix a horse with a donkey for a mule so i think he would yeah the discovery permissionless innovation is a phrase we at the competitive enterprise institute and others use that you have to you can't be you can't have a system where you have to ask the government for permission every time you invent something or make a discovery or sell something new now you should be you know liable for damages but you have to you know you have to leave people free to innovate as and, and take risks. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe in a way, maybe I'm, I'm being too pessimistic there, but certainly, well, let me ask you this quick question. Uh, and I want to, then we're going to, you know, I want you to think about it as, before, as we go into a break, but what policies in a George, in the George Washington presidency encouraged the very thing that he, uh, entrepreneurship that he encouraged as a, uh, you know, outside of Washington, you know, when he wasn't, because as you said, he was, and not just an entrepreneur, but he also encouraged entrepreneurship. But let's kind of talk about the presidency side of the case. So when we get back presidency and what he did to encourage this facet of entrepreneurship. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. 
At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files and our two-hour block and Fourth of July special. Uh, we're with uh, John Burlow. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can listen to this podcast and others on the Bachelor News Network by going to News. Dot Marathon, dot pro, and you can get a list of the programs. A schedule, for example, of the Donaldson Files. I'll repeat, this show will be between 10 uh, Central Time, 11 Eastern Time, followed by You and the Law, and followed by the Resistance Hour, which is uh, 1 o'clock uh, Eastern Time and noon Central Time. And the Donaldson Files comes back on uh, for Eastern Time and 3 Central Time. On the podcast, plus you can listen to this show on the following radio network, TuneIn.com, uh, Intune, Spotify, and Anchor. All of those programs also will carry the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. All right. Okay, John. What, you know, when you look at his initial, the initial administration, what policies you know, would you kind of point out that would definitely be friendly to entrepreneurship or kind of follow up on, you know, his own thinking along those lines? Well, I mean, the most consequential, I think, of his administration was the Patent Act of 1790, which he encouraged Congress to do as the Constitution um, uh, uh, a power specifically granted and to allow the U.S. to have a patent office to uh, give uh, inventors their their right their rights to uh, um, their rights to their inventions. I mean, Washington had been a patron of inventors, really, even uh, as a private citizen when he retired as general and was, you know, once again, you know, sort of Lord of Mount Vernon. Um, he championed uh, James Rumsey, who before Washington met him, had kind of been considered a crackpot, um, was trying to invent this mechanical boat. But uh, Washington encouraged Virginia and Maryland to, to give state patents to him. And he ended up uh, being uh, getting along with John Fitch when the U.S. Patent Office opened uh, the first patent for a, for a steamboat. Uh, he, he success, Rumsey successfully staled a steamboat the same year as the Constitution, 1787, about 
six miles, and then uh, Robert Fulton would later commercialize the technology 20 years later, sort of be like the Henry Ford and make it commercially successful. But Washington always, you know, praised inventors and uh, and patronized them, made some inventions of his own, and the Patent Act of 1790 was was sort of the culmination of of that. And Washington, from what I from what research has, has shown, has been involved, may have even may have even signed some of those uh, patents. I think also having a uh, a neutral relationship with with other con- with other countries or or based on self interest, not on old you know angers with with England would be important. The Jay Treaty was a struggle, but I think but I think you know reducing the trade barriers with Great Britain was was important important for uh, international commerce. And he never wanted to, while he thought manufacturing was important, and that's why he was for patents, he never actually went as far as Hamilton and did not support Hamilton's uh, plan to subsidize manufacturers, um, uh, wrote Hamilton that he thought it was unconstitutional, didn't you know, say that much publicly about it, but he certainly, you know, if he had lended his support, it might have passed, and it ended up dying in Congress. So those two things, as well as the negative, you know, that he was sort of rejected mercantilism there while encouraging invention and innovation with patents, was was very important was very important and as you know sometimes it's also what government doesn't do that uh, that that is that is that is the one thing and he made that clear that you know about agencies you know should not usurp powers of the legislature when he gave his when he gave his uh, farewell um, uh, uh, farewell address he said um, he called for quote caution with those entrusted with its administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres avoiding in the exercise of powers of one department to encroach upon another the wise words we should take today uh larry what do you think well he's he's always i i I think that the um, political side of the um Washington administration. It was actually eight years, and and uh, uh, it was really an informative period of the. Uh, I mean, it was the formation of of a whole new nation. But I don't think that many of the uh, uh, legislative and uh, and political uh, innovations that were uh, introduced and and some failed, some were uh, successful. The uh, Supreme Court is a, is, a, is a case in point. But um, I, I don't think Washington has given very much uh, uh, attention or, or, or uh, e- e- yeah, even attention, as, 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 uh, let alone, a, let alone uh, praise for, for his leadership in the, uh, in the political in the political side of of his uh, presidency, and um, I, I'm 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 kind of surprised to uh, hear you you talk of uh, you mention that intellectual property uh, as the primary uh, as a primary uh, contribution, but there there certainly were others that that. Uh, uh, that that he he espoused and and show, showed leadership. I, I I think that the the common perception of Washington as president was that he was sort of chairman of the board, and the same kind of thing that we were uh, told was 
uh, characteristic of uh, President Eisenhower, you know, that they kind of stood back and and uh, made uh, watched uh, the other guys uh, fight it out, and then uh, then just took the tried to make the uh, the outcome uh, fit to his own ideas, and and there and there we went, and uh, it just kind of. Uh, is, is that's that's not that's not the the uh, that's not the the uh, uh, picture of uh, of uh, Washington that you present in your book. You you, you show him as a lot more ac- activist than that. I think one of your points is that yes, he was a good presiding officer. There's no doubt about that, and he lo- he had a very good skill at listening to people. I mean that you know he would go for days famously in the Constitutional uh, Convention without publicly saying a word on end, although he was talking to people um, in between sessions. And he, he would listen. He would have, you know, Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton pre- present their arguments. He sort of created the cabinet that we have now of d- different viewpoints from, the, from an administration that, you know, was not in the Constitution. That is, that is Washington's handiwork. So you, he was a good listener and, we, you know, would, wouldn't interfere when it wasn't necessary. But he did do a lot of things, you know, to set this – that I mentioned, that set the country on course both with intellectual property, with, with – trade and negotiating uh, uh, treaties and sort of, you know, having that both neutrality and, uh, and self-interest. And one other thing that didn't directly affect commerce but affected certainly our freedoms is he would, the, the First Amendment, uh, you know, promised freedom of religion, free exercise, but Washington would go to congregations and write to different congregations, particularly minority religions from, from the Catholics to the, to the Jews to the Quakers, and say that you know that um, everyone in America should be able to live under his own vine and fig tree, and he and he famously said to Congregation Jesuit Israel in in Rhode Island in Newport, Rhode Island, he says the U.S. gives to uh, to bigotry no sanction, was was promising religious freedom to the Jews of that that con- that that con- that congregation. So he was he was a champion of religious freedom as 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 president, and those words coming from him, you know, sort of you know. Putting the you know the respect of, of of the of the of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment in the president's words, you know, were were revolutionary. But he also was a, something of a Lyndon Johnson arm twister, wasn't he? I don't know. Well, he he could he could lobby certainly the the J the J Treaty. Um, I don't know how much he gave the. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. Think he was he was that much of an he was he was like an LBJ intimidating force. He had that from his from his presence. He didn't didn't really need to make threats like like LBJ did. I, well, I, I, I wasn't thinking of that either. But but um, he did get right, he, he did get in there in the in the areas that he was uh, interested in and and was espousing. I mean, he he didn't just sit there and hope somebody else came up with the idea. Right, he he would he would actively he would actively lobby. There's no doubt that yeah. about that. It's a question of how you how you go about that, and uh, you know his uh, his lending lending his his presence to that, and uh, um, also he had you know he studied 
the from the rules of civility they read read in his is is as a, as a kid he hadn't a formal he didn't have a formal education but he behaved with the manners of a royal court like for different state dinners and things like that and Martha certainly helped him with that. Yeah, that yeah that's a, you know like I said this because again there's you know it's an interesting point that both of you guys are making is that there was a different George Washington we looked at. And even and like and say, John, you made a kind of an interesting point. You know, when you look at the con, the, the constant debate during the Constitutional Conference uh, Convention, for me, uh, you know, he worked behind the scenes. It's kind of like he presided over it, didn't say you know, publicly, but behind the scenes, you know, he was in fact being active. And right. uh, and and it's kind of like and sometimes we see it because we saw. You know, in many ways, we saw it like in the Eisenhower administration. You know, Eisenhower had this reputation well, of being above prey, but the reality is there was a tougher, you know, more demanding Dwight Eisenhower that was private, and he actually didn't mind having that reputation. He kind of, you know, he kind of viewed that it. it kind of benefited him when dealing with people, you know, uh, dealing with people. Uh, so. And that about the question I'm going to throw back to you. You mentioned the was the religious freedom aspect, but in his uh, farewell address, uh, no entangling alliances. Can you kind of delve into that on the foreign policy side? You know, what was he? What was that message to America at that time? What was he warning us about? I think he. I think he was arguing against – now, I'm not an expert on Washington's foreign policy. And, uh, in fact, I, the thing I quote from the farewell address was more about, you know, sort of early warnings about the administrative state and, you know, going beyond the Constitution and having executive agencies usurp power, which I think is as important, if not more, than what he said about foreign policy. But I think it was a common-sense thing that, you know, we shouldn't be – we should look at our interests rather than – rather than sentimental attachments as far as uh, to countries, as he did, you know, when, you know, just was a sort of a cold practical negotiator with the Jay Treaty with uh, with Britain and didn't want to, you know, side with France, you know, even though France, you know, had uh, was proclaiming our ideals. Of course, they were perverting in some ways with Rousseau and the guillotine some of our some of our ideals, and it helped us in the Revolutionary War. He said, you know, you, I think it's sort of like what um, uh, Frederick Douglass said about, uh, um, you know, politics too, no permanent friends, no permanent in, uh, enemies, only permanent interests. So I think he was just saying, you know, with uh, you know we have you know goodwill toward all, but we should always look at America's interests. I don't think it was a complete non-intervention, as um, uh, you know some libert- uh, libertarians or isolationists would have today. But I think it was like with a with a, a practical mindedness about not having sentimental attachments to foreign nations and what would just have what would serve the U.S. interests the best. Yeah, well that's a good point because here's the thing: at that particular time, the French. You know, you know, the French the government that uh, aided us in the revolution no longer existed, and you had basically a revolution that descended into Napoleon. Yes. And there was no doubt. And there was no doubt that the, there were French interference uh, within the United States, uh, you know, from the political point of view, because and, – and certainly at that time, one of the, you know, one of the aspects is you know, France and England were at war with each other. 
which they would be for like the next 15, almost 15, you know, almost 20 years. Uh, so, but it, it is an interesting point that you're making. It's, you know, it is not so much permanent alliances per se as much as uh, watching what our national interests and not having sentimentalism. In other words, I, I guess what you would say will be what we would say of kind of a hard-edged real politic and uh, foreign policy where sentimentalism is out, period, and looking yes. at the one's national interests you know, with that. Uh, right. You put it very so, well, Tom. Yeah. Uh, now the, it, it sounds to me like he's a lot more like Trump than he is like Biden. <laughs> Well, I mean, you could <laughs> he 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 did invest heavily in uh, heavily in real estate and and was uh, um, uh, certainly was 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 uh, so um, you could say you you and he gave you know he would give detailed instructions about Washington would give I mean Washington was careful to avoid conflict of interest and he didn't you know um, uh, he didn't. Um, um, I mean, and and the and uh, I mean, the both serving as president and and the, and the, and being general, especially being general, took a, took a toll on you know Mount Vernon was in terrible shape when he when he returned from the uh, from the Revolutionary War. But Washington would always see himself as as you know head of Mount Vernon. That was his, always his first love. He would give write detailed letters from the battlefield and from the White House about how high the fences should be and what type of manure to use on the crops and and everything. So always, and I'm just wondering if we make it. Um, uh, um, you know, difficult for like say an, an entrepreneur of you know of whatever party to be um, to be to be to be uh, to be president or to serve or or to do public service. Or do we just have a professional class of of politicians? That's a question you know I I ask myself uh, writing this book, and I still ask myself. Well, let's follow up on that particular point. Yeah, let me follow up on because he chose not to run for a third term. Which he easily would have won. You know, anywhere in your writing, you know, is there an ex- does he give an explanation, or is there an explanation ever given why he walked away when he did? I think he well, he you know he walked away twice from basically from uh, from being being at the uh, from being the nation's ruler, both when he when he retired at, at the end of the Revolutionary War when people wanted to make him emperor king and he said this is uh he well he saw the problems with kings but also he liked being a private citizen. He liked being um uh, you know running Mount Vernon and you know being under, you know, as he said and quoting you know from uh Micah from the Hebrew scriptures, being under his own uh, vine and fig tree. So I think that it's very much that he saw just being, you know, doing, doing, you know, fighting for liberties and leading the country as and leading the country at war as as his duty, not something he wanted to do have as a permanent job. But there's also the rumor that one of the reasons that he that he got out was that the uh, press and particularly Jefferson, uh, the, the Jefferson Adams fight was just so much. Uh, Turmoil and and so uh, uh, really raw uh, and and actually uh, against him, you know they they were using the press, particularly Jefferson, to uh, to try to uh, uh, undermine uh, what uh, Washington was 
he just got so disgusted with the turmoil, he said, the hell with it, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of here. What, did, 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 you ran into that, I'm sure. I mean, well, that might have been a motivation, but I think, you know, given the fact that he he never liked to be away from Mount Vernon for too uh, for for too for too long, and given the fact that he had already done that as um, uh, uh, you know, given up power once before, as, as you know, when he was head of the when he was head of the Continental Army, I don't think this was a big uh, leap for him to do this. So there may have been some other things at play, but I think he didn't really want to serve too too long, regardless of uh, circumstances. Yeah. So you give well, you give no thought. credence to that. What'd you say? You give no credence to that theory. I'm not as it, it's not something I I came I I mean I did come across that that you know he was he was getting critics and of course he made some enemies with the, with the Jay Treaty and other and other things but um, it was never easy to be president so I'm not sure I don't I certainly don't think it explains everything I think the fact he just wanted to he just wanted to go home he enjoyed his home and he made Mount Vernon like a Mount Vernon Inc a, you know a business a business empire so why wouldn't he want to go go home after serving, you know, uh, lim- limited times and thinking the country was off off the ground. Hold on that thought. Uh, uh, John, if you can stay for a few more minutes, uh, we will, like I say, George Landreth is going to be joining us shortly, but I want to try to take a quick uh, break here. Uh, then we want to kind of continue in some of the thoughts that you're leading us into. Well, thank you. I'd be glad. Be glad. Yeah. yeah. Trumpet, you know it's the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Dr. Larry yeah, Peterwatt, and I'm Tom and Donaldson. I, we got John, in, and now the the Resistance Hour is officially begun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And this is the second half of our of our uh, open house, Fourth uh, of July open house, radio open house. Uh, and uh, we have uh, one of our uh, guests is still with us, uh, John Burlow, with uh, who is the, uh, the the reigning expert on the uh, subject of uh, George Washington, the entrepreneur. And uh, I believe uh, Dr. George uh, Landreth is also with us. Uh, not and, yet. Uh, not yet. Not yet. Well, he no. he is. He'll be coming on shortly. Well, now he, George is well, George he is. is an old friend of mine. I'm sure George Landreth is. I'm sure he'll have a lot of wise things to say as well. By the way, speaking of George, as you were speaking and saying he's, that he's on, he came on the air. George, how's it going? It's going great. I'm glad Hi, to be here. This is the place to be. <laughs> it's the place to be, yes. Yeah, we're we, uh, we got John Burlow, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I guess the two of you know each other. 
And George Landrut is the president of uh, Frontier of Freedom. So I do know John. He's a good we, fellow. Yeah, right yeah. Right. Battle yeah, for Freedom a, for a long time. I appreciate that. Same here, well, George. Here's, I got. I, I got. I do have to make a statement here because I've known John for like three decades. Uh, yeah, I've known John when he was in college, uh, uh, getting, you know, working at the, you know, living at the, you know, you know, going to University of Missouri School of Journalism. And the two of us actually contributed to what, what the Casey Jones with the, our good friend, the late uh, uh, Richard Nadler. So, you know, you know so I, and he did uh, write a nice uh, uh, blurb for my book, uh, uh, the, my previous book. And by the way, John, John, I do have another book coming out. Uh, we're in the finishing up the editing uh, of that as well. So, Congratulations, Tom. Yeah, now I guess. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's going to be self-published, so I'm in the process of deciding which publisher I want to use, and uh, and I'm kind of leaning to a couple of publishers associated with Salem Medium Corporation, if for no other reason. Uh, I'm sure it will be great, like your like your last book, like your last book was yeah. about uh, yeah. the different yeah. uh, the different uh, our current political political scene. Well, here's the thing. I, well, George, I would, but, you know, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, George, Larry, we're uh, we're uh, starting off everybody tonight with uh, with your thoughts about uh, the Fourth uh, of July coming up, the uh, America's Day of Independence, and uh, we'd like to we'd like to hear your uh, your uh, profound uh, meditations on that topic. <laughs> well. We'll see if it's profound, but I, but I do think that to understand the significance of the United States of America in a context of world history, you have to understand and grasp uh, both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And quite frankly, what makes them both so remarkable isn't, for example, that the authors were eloquent or their special turn of phrase. It's these um, immutable truths that they uh, imbued in these documents and they found that it, this, these documents contain just these fundamental important truths. And I would argue the first one is that freedom is important. It provides greater happiness and prosperity than governments based on command and control principles. And I would argue, too, to be blunt, God is the author of liberty, as we say in the great American hymn so beautifully uh, when we say, you know, our fathers, our fathers, God to thee, author of liberty to thee we sing. Um, you know, um, but also if you look throughout thousands of years of human history, what you find is that freedom is the exception, not the rule. And so if you kind of think that America is just the norm and it's, you know, things normally work out this way, you don't understand. We live in an exceptional nation. We live in an exceptional time in history. And, and I, I think that's an important premise. But on top of that, um, there's so many other things in the Declaration that are just beautiful and I think are important. And also that, quite frankly, changed the world because they, um, they essentially attacked the conventional wisdom. An example would be, where do rights come from? The, it was believed before Jefferson penned the Declaration by most people that rights came from the ruler. The ruler could grant you whatever rights he wanted to. And, uh, and Jefferson said otherwise. He said that 
the basic source of our rights is our creator and that we have them because we're human beings. And that changes things because if rights are God-given, then you can't take them from someone, as he said, without incurring God's wrath. If rights come from the king, he can take them from you. And it's tough luck, dude. So that's an important, you know, just even this simple things like that that we may take for granted today. But there's so much more. I mean, that's just a couple points. But the reality is the Declaration of Independence changed the world. It's one of the very most influential political documents ever written. And again, it's not because of the turn of phrase that Jefferson wrote with, and he was a great writer. It's because of the truths that he wrote about. Well, the um, famous uh, saying of, uh, of President Reagan was, uh, "We're all always one gen- freedom is one generation from uh, being lost." And right. it, it seems to me that we're we're on that cusp right now. Uh, very, it's, we're early in it, and there are still m- many ways out of it, but it certainly is there. It, it, I, I feel that we're more threatened in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the powers here in Washington, anyway, the, that uh, than we have been in in my lifetime. I, I, I think. No, I I think you're right about that. And Reagan was right. Both of you are. (laughs) So so the question the question is also, what what do we do to preserve the uh, independence that we're celebrating on the Fourth of July this year, um, so that we have that same independence and liberty and pursuit of happiness that we have this year uh, in, in in future years. Um, well, I, you know, as, as politically incorrect as it is, I think we have to ter- return to these principles of truth that are in the Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution. And I believe that those who have ulterior motives, they denigrate the founders and the documents that they came up with because they view that as an impediment to their goals. And their political goals are about control. And... and uh, and I'll be honest, the Declaration of Independence is a great anthem for anybody who wants to enjoy freedom, as is the Constitution. And if your goal is to place yourself in charge and to revert back to a world in which you have rulers, then you need to get rid of some of the things that they outlined and that they you know, set the world uh, in a different trajectory. And so I, to me... We need to get back to some of these important principles, and I think uh, if we do, uh, we'll be blessed. You know, an example would be, you know, government is limited, and that it exists to serve the citizenry, not the other way around. And, um, and that government exists essentially for the f- important function of securing your rights, uh, protecting your rights, but not granting them. And uh, I think that's important, but also, quite frankly, I would argue um, – we have to get back to the idea that people are superior to government. In other words, you know, our founders believe that, that God created people and gave them inalienable rights, and then people established governments to help safeguard and secure those rights. Therefore, people are superior to the government they created. It's almost like if I, had, if I gave one of you a, uh, 
a power of attorney. I could, I, can, I could give you a legal document that let you do anything I have the right to do. You could sell my cars. You could buy, use money to, to buy things in my name. You could sell my home. But you know what you couldn't do with my power of attorney? You couldn't sell my neighbor's home because I can't delegate to someone else any authority that I don't already have. And yet today yeah, we've on, kind yeah. of blown through that. Well, hold, yeah. hold, hold that yeah, thought. Hold on that. And we'll come right back here, and I want to get John's uh, view on that as well. So, so you, you might know me on 50 the... Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in the six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. This is uh, your list. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. We're prohibited. Okay, now we're back to the Donald's the Resistance Hour, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the Resistance Hour uh, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're talking to uh, a couple of uh, very uh, well-informed uh, gentlemen, uh, George Landreth and uh, John Burlaw. Uh, and uh, George, we interrupted you uh, in your uh, soliloquy here uh, last uh, last time. Um, I, I guess I guess my 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 question at, at the moment though is that uh, these people that we're that we're talking about, <clears throat> there, there's a whole group of them that that don't know the the. Uh, uh, Constitution and the uh, and the Bill of Rights, they 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 don't they just uh, they don't care about it and they they are fighting against it but without really knowing what it's all about. They don't have a very uh, con a very uh, clear concept of history. In fact, they don't have any any concept of the actual history of the United States. Uh, they get a lot of propaganda, but that's about it. And they're they're, they're a lot like the know nothings of the middle of the t- of the 19th century. That uh, except that it's this is a lot more uh, literal. They really do know nothing. They know nothing except this uh, urge to power that uh, they're being fed by uh, some uh, very. Uh, um, unfortunately, uh, influential uh, leaders, and and then of course there's on, on top of that or in, involved with that is the uh, the actual uh, political group that know they do know all about what we're talking about, but they don't they don't accept it because of various reasons. And I think you're right about the uh, lust for power and. Um, so here, here we're 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 
confronted with violence like we have never we haven't seen in 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 the, the kind of volume at least i mean we could talk john could tell us about the whiskey rebellion maybe and the shea rebellion but uh we've never really had this kind of uh violence in, in so many big cities uh like we had all last summer looks like we may have some more this summer then uh we have attacks on all these institutions and the most uh, relevant right now are the uh it seems like are the uh the uh downplaying of the the defunding of the police and the uh the uh, rape of their position in society to the extent that they're all uh retiring or uh or uh, quitting and there are no new recruits coming and if this this republic has always had the law and order as its primary one of its primary goals, and uh, and and it's it, it's disintegrating in our in front of us, and then you've got this whole situation at the border, which is uh, uh, talk about a uh, decline of uh, law and order. There just isn't any. Uh, it's it's just uh, completely out of control, and it's it's worse than in some cases. It's as bad as as some of the concentration camps that we were uh, t- fighting against in World War Two. So yeah, okay, uh, yeah. Th- that's, that's a, a pretty good, big yeah, picture. A, yeah, that's okay. So uh, John, your thoughts, and then we'll come back to George. Well, I wanted to go back and and uh, George George said something. You know, I agree with 100 percent with what with what George was saying about uh, cherishing it about the declaration because of what it what it promised being a unique uh, unique document that that rights are respected and not um, uh, you know, recognize the government doesn't create rights. You get rights from God and and governments. They're just you know a just government is one that respects rights. I would also say, and what we stress at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, um, CEI.org, by the way, is that the and, – and also I believe George – I know George works on this at Frontiers of Freedom too – taming or really ending the administrative state where regulators act without the consent, the consent of Congress. We as say it at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, we, we need to end regulation uh, without representation just as they did ta- taxation without representation today. I mean, it's clear the Congress, you know, is the only one that can set set tax rates, but you have um, uh, regulatory agencies like the EPA using the thinnest pretext of law, saying like a little ditch or mud puddle is suddenly a a wetland, or the SEC saying that, you know, cryptocurrency, alternative money, which is like the founders had in their days with tobacco warehouse receipts, saying that's somehow like a stock or bond or a security. So we need something like... uh, the RAINS Act or other things where regulations, you know, have to be voted on up or down by Congress so that the legisl- laws remain in the legislature and we don't have um, what Washington uh, called the, um, the, the encroachment of the powers of one department to encroach upon the, another. I'm going to have to go. This has been a pleasure. I enjoy talking with Tom with you and Dr. Larry and, and George. And the book is George Washington Entrepreneur, available uh, wherever books are sold. Well, thanks again. For, well, thank you very uh, much. Us. Thank you and so thank you, much. John, Have a very, much. very happy Fourth of July. Uh, thank you, and you too. So, okay. George, okay. what do you think about the uh, the opposition here, and what do we do about it? 
Well, the opposition is actually um, pretty formidable because there's a lot on the line for them. And um, the other thing, you know, a lot of times how this works is you get these concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. When I was on a school board, um, you know, they would try to do things where uh, a certain group or class of people would be the beneficiaries of a relatively modest tax increase. So it was hard to get the taxpayers to show up and complain about an extra, you know, $50 a year in taxes. And then the benefits of that, you know, money was going to go to just a very small group of people. And uh, and they were, of course, really jazzed about it because it was going to be a lot of money to them because it was times, you know, all the taxpayers in the county. And um, and so they they play this game where we're leading our lives, we're doing things that, you know, we're raising families, running businesses, and and so forth, and they kind of nickel and dime us to death, and eventually it starts to add up. And so I think at some point we've got to wake up as as Americans, and stand against that trend, and and do what our founders did: speak up for freedom. And I'm not. I want to make a point here: the American colonists in the history of the world were not particularly mistreated. So I'm not saying they weren't justified. I'm saying when you compare them to many of the uh, of you know other societies, they actually had it reasonably good. You know, if you want to compare it, but but they stood on principle and realized it's not a function of whether we're being treated better than some other people. Maybe the other people were dragged around in chains constantly. Sure, we're doing better than that, but they they believed in the things they wrote about and talked about. And we've been the beneficiaries of that. And if we get lax, we will um, give it up because Reagan was right. And I'm worried that we've become lax. And I don't mean that, you know, Tom or Larry have become lax. I mean, as a society, we, you know, and uh, and I, I think we have that. to. Pardon me. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just yeah. saying, I think <laughs> your program, um, the things that I do, the thing that John does um, are designed to do exactly what you're talking about, which is to remind people, to call them, to teach them, uh, get them reengaged to the idea that their freedom and liberty matters and they better stand up for it. Yeah. Tom, that's a good point. Think? I mean, that's a, what I think, absolutely. Seriously, interesting. I think of it this way. You know, I had a chance, I mean, there was a recent Gallup poll, and, and the question was, you know, is the pandemic over and it was interesting to me is that four out of four percent of democrats said it's not it's over that means 96 percent still fear what's out there there and now we're hearing okay like in los angeles you know, because of the quote-unquote delta variant they're back to wearing masks on the indoors in la and i'm thinking to myself yeah, you know, there would have been a time and place where, you know, we would have just said to hell with this. Uh, but we literally have half of America, you know, basically perfectly willing to give up their freedoms uh, and stay bunkered down and do what the government tells them, even when it became self-evident that the science the government was telling them was wrong. And yet here we are. You know, I don't think half of America objected to all of this. And that, to me, 
You know, so you know, is, is that telling us something? What do you but think? The answer, isn't the answer to that uh, 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 Ron DeSantis? You know, isn't it leadership? It seems to me that yeah. if you have leadership that says this is not, you know, I've done my own analysis of this. I've consulted, uh, consulted the people that I, I really respect, and uh, we've come to the conclusion that this is nonsense, and so we're not going to follow it. And uh, and they didn't, and and that that's why they uh, have been so successful. But and 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 it seems to me that 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 is that's that's the answer to the dilemmas that we're in, and in 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 that in that we have to have leadership, and we don't have the elected leadership that we that that we somehow got, which is seems to be in certain amount of question about that but we anyway that's they 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 won by whatever means um they're certainly not providing the kind of leadership that we need and um mm-hmm. so but but we've also but those who provide that leadership will like Ron DeSantis and others be attacked as somehow the problem because they see this as Will they continue to exercise control, or will freedom regain, as it were, and uh, become the agenda again? And they don't want that. Well, yeah, Yeah. you mean the left doesn't want that. Right, right, yeah, the left. I I certainly think that, that DeSantis wants that. Oh, of course. I, yeah, I, my apologies if I, if I implied otherwise. I'm saying that someone like DeSantis will be attacked by the left precisely oh, yeah, because yeah, they yeah. view him as a threat to their agenda of control and power and uh, because freedom is the natural enemy of someone who seeks to have dominion over others, power over others. Well, hold that thought. You're listening to the Resistance Hour. <clears throat> on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Oops, oh, oh. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, 
You can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa Know How. Napa Know How. Yeah, Larry, before we go any further, you know, I want to replay, because uh, George didn't get a chance, I want to kind of have George listen uh, to your rendition of Freedom Call to Action. Well, okay. Uh, I was going to ask you to yeah. do that at the end, but why don't we do it now? We'll do it now. We can do it at the end, too. And uh, one, two, three. Our first frontier is gone. Our lands are no longer wild. Our forests and mountains and deserts no longer tease with mystery and challenge. Our lands are tamed and hogtied with railroads and highways and air lanes, bundled up and ready to be sold, filled with people, plumbing and taming. Our mines are all discovered. Our fields are cities and parking lots. Our rivers are dammed and trees cut. Our next frontier now has come. This is not the challenge of our restless youth. Alas, the newest challenge is in the voting booth, where our people must be saved, saved before we forget our past, before our enemies crush our future into poverty and despair. Our cause is great and grand and godly against evil, against long lines of starving minds and idle hands, of bleeding machines and men dehumanized by greed, but most of all against the godless ones who smear our clear vision and conquer us with caresses, who also trash our laws, who waste our work and treat our people like sheep. We must go now while we can still feel, while our long lungs can still tingle with the great air fresh and big from the open sea. While we can still stand and strain and struggle, while our sinew and courage can win and send our enemies slinking home in defeat. But the battle is now. Soon we will be bundled by useless laws and petty powers, tied held helpless like our tamed land, our fight and our spirit lying in the dust, squeezed out like toothpaste from its tooth by the bonds of our land and our enemy's iron fist. Yes, we must go now. <clears throat> now is our last chance to win, for the battle has nearly been lost already. Our enemies pretend we do not exist. Smug and snobbish in their lofty steeple, they do not believe the real Americans are gathering now to take back our land and our people, take back our land of the free and our home of the brave. We the Americans who gave our soldiers' lives for law and liberty, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, from sea to shining sea. We are coming, we are near. Our legions will fill the arena, leaving our enemies alone in fear. America's shining city will survive, our jobs and paychecks thrive, and we will keep in sacred trust our liberty legacies alive. May God bless America always. Amen.
All right. Uh, George, what do you think? Well said. Um, one of the things that I, I think uh, Larry did a really good job of um, the um, – just it was describing it used to be that America believed, for example, that it was you know always just foreign powers that could put us at risk. You know it was you know it was Nazi Germany, it was the Soviet Union. Uh, today, at least, certainly China presents a great risk to us. I, I I won't dispute that, but I would argue that for China to defeat us, there are people in Congress and in positions of power that are doing things to help China. And they may be doing unwittingly. I don't know their heart. But I do know that they're very interested in power and not that interested in freedom. And I thought that Larry, without using the exact words I'm using, I thought did a good job of pointing out that there are people who are enemies of freedom who do not necessarily fly the flag of another nation. They speak to us in accents and in tones that sound familiar, and yet they're not our friends. They don't want what we want. They actually have very, very um, dangerous intentions, at least some of them. And I'm not saying everyone who disagrees with us or voted differently than us is, is an enemy, but there are definitely those in Washington who know what they're about, and they are pursuing a plan and their plan does not involve your freedom or your prosperity. It involves their power and their control. And the one area that we have not talked much about is education. And what we're talking, what we're getting into is a uh, propagandizing of a whole new generation, which... Um, is uh, extremely uh, dangerous and and inimical inimical to uh, to our idea of equality of uh, one man one vote of equality of uh, peoples with uh, without regard to uh, race and religion and and uh, that's this is, this is uh, this is this is insidious. Uh, this reminds is reminiscent of uh, Nazi Germany, and, and also Soviet uh, Russia. Um, but the good news is that uh, I think, my own personal opinion, that these <coughs> that the, uh, the the two forces of uh, the pandemic, on the one hand, and the recalcitrance of the um, American Federation of Teachers have uh, um, made uh, school choice of uh, uh, have given it a, a, a type of a type of uh, uh, leap ahead that it has never never before had and, and may in fact be the final straw that brings it to uh, to uh, victory in this next election. But boy, I sure hope so, because otherwise yeah, we, on, yeah, yeah. we're in trouble. Yeah, but, yeah. By the way, I wanted to say uh, we have a special guest from uh, Kentucky, uh, the Honorable Professor Wilfer Riley uh, joining us. Thank you, Will. Glad you could make it. Sure, glad glad to be on the show. Yeah, 
Well, like I say, we're talking the 4th of July and uh, you know, what's happening, what's going on. We've had a discussion on George Washington and his contribution, a uh, discussion on you know, where we go from here, you know, the good, the news. So I'm going to ask you this question first. If somebody would say to you, what do you see positive happening in America that gives you hope? Will? Well, I think that the, the answer to that, without getting too pompous, is that the past couple of hundred years of human development, if you look at modern Western culture, and for that matter, our rivals, China and so on, the trajectory has been up. So, I mean, if you look at IQ, if you look at technology, we have you know, indoor toilets with running water in them. All that's been getting better. So I, I think those trends are going to keep going forward. I mean, robotics, medicine, people living to be 120. The issue is kind of the decadence that goes along with that, the lack of contentment, the lack of meaning. And that's, that's what a lot of our challenges are right now. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, George, your thoughts? Um, no, I think he's right about that. I think the other thing that uh, cuts on our favor is um, the left often overplays its hand. I think we're seeing that happen right now, whether it's the border, whether it's the spending, whether it's whatever. And that wakes people up because the incrementalism, the little bit at a time slowly turning up the heat, uh, sometimes lulls us into a sense of false security and we, we don't recognize what they're doing. But then they invariably do something stupid like this where they just kind of they jar you out of your slumber. So I'm, I'm hopeful that Americans are being jarred enough to wake up and recognize that they need to be voting for people and supporting candidates uh, for people who actually value the principles found in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. We need that spirit of 1776 again among the American electorate. And, um, and the reason that we need it is because freedom is the best thing going. And the beautiful thing about it is as much as people want to act like the Constitution or the Declaration is somehow, um, you know, race conscious, freedom is not. When, when we talk about freedom for all people, period, it's uh, the greatest thing on the planet. And it's why our nation has been so successful and done so well. We've, we've done better than anyone else at making true on that promise. We haven't always been perfect, but we have, you know, we've obviously had our mistakes. But, but look, at the, look at the strides that we've made, and uh, I just feel like there's a lot. Um, I think a lot of Americans have forgotten that, but as, as, the, as the left just overplays their hands so dramatically, it's going to jar a lot of people, and they'll go, oh, so wait, whoa, what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's what you – I didn't know I was voting for that. My view is I'm that. voting for nicer tweets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go any further, I, I do want to go for. I do want to introduce uh, Will Riley is the associate professor at Kentucky State University. He is also associated with 1776 Unite, uh, an organization out of uh, uh, put together by Rob Woodson, and and. Uh, and he's also the author of two books, uh, several books, I should say, including Taboo, uh, Two Things, uh, and make sure I get this right, you know, Two Things You Don't Talk About. And he also wrote chapters at Red, White, and Black, which was produced by 1776 Unite. And maybe as a follow-up to that, uh, Will, why don't you talk very briefly, and we're going to and take your time because we're going to go right through the break. So I'm telling my uh, – you know, the, the person at the board who's keeping tabs of this, 
Uh, Teresa, we're going to go through the break here. So, okay. Uh, so, uh, but talk about 776 Unite and how you think this kind of fits into the discussion on the 4th of July. Well, I think 1776 Unites, as the name indicates, is a pretty damn American organization. 1776 Unites began originally as something specific, which was the black business and social science community's response to the New York Times 1619 project, which said a lot of things that were frankly nonsensical, that people didn't object to because they were edgy and challenging or something like that, but because they were wrong, that you know, the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery, that, you know, everything unique about the USA, like Irish immigration, somehow came out of slavery. Uh, so we wanted to respond to that and say, no, there are a lot of, you know, intelligent, non-racist white people, black people, so on, that, that just don't believe this. And then as we began to get hired in almost consulting roles and as we began to get asked about book deals and so on, it grew into something larger than that, which is what is a positive vision for modern, multi-ethnic, 21st century America. So, I mean, we have an educational curriculum, which does look at slavery and so on, but which also makes some basic points about context. Slavery wasn't illegal really anywhere in the world until about 1820. Um, so that, that is 1776 Unites. We're, we're very visible at www.1776unites.com, where you can find the curriculum, the list of people involved, you know, what we call Agenda 2022, a, a bunch of other things of that kind. And as you mentioned, that was put together by... Uh, the great Robert Woodson civil rights campaigner really since the Martin Luther King era. Yeah. He sure is. Boy, I, I, I agree with you about Woodson. Yeah, he's an impressive guy, Bob. Well, my my view of uh, of the uh, fate of uh, the left is going to be sealed uh, on the day that Americans have to spend $100 to fill up their gas tanks. That 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 will be enough to kick them out of power, and I don't think well, that that day, that, I don't think that's too far off. I gotta say it's not that too far off. I filled my car up and it was like three dollars a gallon, so it was almost fifty. It was like close to fifty dollars. That's right. So well, we're we halfway a, there. Well, we had <laughs> we had a sixty dollar uh, bill here uh, recently. <clears throat> Yeah, but those are European uh, rates almost. Yeah, yeah. I have. Well, Americans, you know, we we're supposed to have uh, a, a real uh, uh, reserve on uh, fossil fuels, including uh, gasoline and uh, not, not gas, oil anyway, and and natural gas. So we're we're kind of spoiled in that, and there's no reason that we should have to have that kind of inflation uh, if we just use our own resources for our own benefit. Yeah, well, it's, just, it's a combination of bad, woke policies, even in the energy sector, where, I mean, you literally had the new administration come in and ban most types of fracking, for example, exactly. or yeah. shut down the major pipeline that we had planned. So, I mean, when you hear all this sort of wind, solar talk, you have to understand there are pretty clean alternatives like nuclear power and modern fracking. I'm sure the guys on this call do understand this. They're just, they're just not being pursued. So that's going to get you, you know, $5 gas and for the solar panels on your house. Sure. Well, we'll yeah. be buying, we'll be buying more gas from, uh, from uh, more, more oil from uh, Russia than we are from uh, our own, our own industry. Yeah. If we don't watch out. Yeah. 
true. Well, okay, let me throw, you know, let me throw this. I'm going to throw this to you, Will, and then I want George to kind of comment as well, because we had this discussion earlier, uh, you know, with George Washington and, you know, and, and one of the aspects that, you know, John Burlow in his book, George Washington Entrepreneur, talked about was there was an evolution of Washington himself. You know, looking at slavery, and and certainly he did free his own slaves. You know, his own slaves were freed upon his death, uh, and with a pension for the older ones, and money to set up for education. And and I think you know, I guess my question was throw back to you, uh, Will, is you know the relationship of slavery in the United States history, and what would you if somebody said to you, okay, slavery. U.S. Constitution, they're all connected, and if we're a racist society, your response would be? Okay. Yeah, so my, my actual response would be that I think that claim is stupid. There's a distinction. First of all, I recognize slavery is extraordinarily inhumane. My black and Irish and Native ancestors have all suffered from it. I mean, all three of those people were brutally abused historically, often by people who looked a lot like them. But – the, the simple fact that something was present when something else began doesn't mean that thing two is defined by thing one. You know, the USA, you know, beaver trapping was one of the most common, most foundational jobs when the country was new to this planet. That doesn't define the United States or the founding documents. Slavery by that name is mentioned either once or not at all in the Constitution, depending on how you interpret um, the three-fifths language early on. So, no, I, I think that the reality is, no, the country's basic principles don't really have that much, if anything, to do with the awful reality that slavery existed at the time. When you look at how to deal with the founding fathers, I think it's kind of awkward to say in public debate, but obviously true, that people are products of their time. So, for example, I mean, I invest in companies today that run factory farms or make doomsday weapons because those are things that we do in our society. We're a predator species, so we get our meat from these giant corporations. We fight wars because our enemies are at least as bloodthirsty as we are. It would be very easy to look back from a better society in 300 years and say, well, Riley was an evil man. But the percentage of people that do that today in this society, in this fallen world far from grace, is extraordinarily high. And that, that's the same context, the same situation you'd be in if you inherited a plantation farm in 1740. It's very – last sentence, I don't want to ramble, but it's very easy to say, well, slavery is bad, you know, set everybody free. Okay, what do they do? They're trained agricultural workers, and in that region of the country, most agricultural workers are slaves. So – the Founding Fathers all had to grapple with that problem of their time, just as we have to grapple with militarism or promiscuity or drugs or a hundred other things today. It's simply absurd to separate people from the entire context of when they lived and say those people were very bad. What about the Vikings? What about the Zulus and so on? That's very true, but boy, that's hard to – these people don't seem to understand that. Well, I don't seem to understand it for our great people. I mean, I'm reading a book about Shaka Zulu right now, great king, also bloodthirsty, accused of cannibalism, frankly, at least the level of his general, if not him. No one ever would respond to a South African politician talking about the glories of Shaka Zulu by saying, well, he was a cannibal. This seems to be uniquely reserved for the founding figures, not just in the West, but in our own country, which has always been extremely bizarre to me, where you see people defending Stalin and attacking Abe Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, George, your thoughts? 
you know, I think that um, he's exactly right. You, um, for some reason, um, we we live in a world in which basically uh, you and I and all of our listeners are responsible for the decisions and actions of people that lived 200 years ago. We're morally responsible for them, you know, and all that, and it's our fault too. And um, and then. Conversely, you have people out, you know, committing crimes today, here and now, not their ancestors, them, not 10 years ago, today, and they're not responsible. And so it's this, they've, they've inverted the concept of personal responsibility to the point where they've tortured it to the point it makes no sense whatsoever. And I would argue that personal responsibility is a foundational element of any successful society. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, Larry, what's your thoughts? Well, um, it, it's it's uh, it's it's a, it's a little hard to get a focus. Um, <clears throat> where I guess the um, idea that that response personal responsibility is a uh, foundation for any society is kind of questionable in the sense that uh, as to how do you define that? If you define it as it's been done most of history, it's really the uh, sense of more personal responsibility means doing what the leadership tells you to do. And if you do that, then you get along and you don't have too much trouble. It's It's the freedom part that gets in the way of that uh, analogy when you're talking about America, and 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 not only America now, but other parts of the world as well. But in our particular flavor of uh, of uh, that uh, that concept, uh, freedom, uh, it really depends not so much upon what the leadership is telling us as it is upon our own. Uh, desire to uh, uh, succeed and 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 to have a have, have a decent life, and and that in turn depends upon what we call law and order. And if you get rid of law and order in a society like ours, uh, you don't have a society. It's like uh, ex-President Trump said today. You know, if you don't have law and order and you don't have uh, borders, uh, you don't have a you don't have a country. And uh, we're 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 coming we're coming close to that. Uh, we're yeah. flirting with that whole concept very very uh, openly right now. And yeah. I think well, here's a people... here's a yeah yeah yeah. I'm gonna follow up on that because here's an interesting thought here. Uh, yes, the last night I went ahead and I don't know. You no, know, I was looking at murder rates in New York City. 1990, the average murder was like I mean, the average. It was like they, it was like 2,300 people were murdered in New York City, 1990. Uh, 2020 it was 468, which, by the way, was a significant increase over 2019. But I kind of made a calculation. If you look at 2,300 people who died, who were murdered, and you look at the the, the yearly reduction that started to begin in the 90s on the Julian Bloomberg. You can pretty much estimate about 45,000 people at minimal to 50,000 people 
are alive today that wouldn't be alive if those if that 2300 and approximately 20 continue on a year by year basis and sometimes we tend to forget that you know and I'm not saying we you know because we've had the discussion on this show about policing and that police you know we you know police reform what needs to be done but there's an aspect is you can't have you know it's, you know the police in some ways are that thin blue line that separates civilization in these areas versus no civilization and chaos and when you're looking at and if somebody can say to me, you know, and nobody, I guess my question would be, who speaks for those forty-five to 50,000 people who are alive today because there was aggressive policing to protect those communities? Uh, your thoughts? I'll start with you, George. Well, you know, I think you've raised some really good points. And I think, uh, as did Larry and, um, and your other guest, I, it's uh, – immensely interesting uh, when i talked about personal responsibility i thought larry did a good job of um of highlighting the difference because you're right historically personal responsibility meant if the king says jump you you say how high um i meant personal responsibility meaning the concept of if you work hard um you know you get the benefits of that hard work if you decide to be foolish and lazy then you get the downside of that um, et cetera, et cetera. You decide to break the law, you suffer the penalty and so forth. And that was the idea that um, since you're the one that gets to decide what you're going to do, you'll either get the benefit of a wise choice or the downside of a foolish choice. And I think that's what I meant when I was you know, saying that society requires that because we now seem to live in a world in which the idea is to insulate people from foolish choices. Go out and make dumb choices. And then don't you worry, we will rescue you from your poor choices. Um, and uh, what you do when you do that is encourage poor choices. You get more of them. Subsidizing stupidity gives you more stupidity. And, and, so, and then at the, by the same token, though, uh, each of us is held responsible for something that um, happened 200 years ago that we had nothing to do with. And we couldn't, you know... The whole point of personal responsibility is to encourage better behavior in the future. Um, yeah. But how do you, you know, how do you hold me responsible for something that people did 200 years ago as a way of encouraging me to do better in the future? I, it doesn't make a lot yeah. of sense. So yeah. uh, I feel like the, that's why I kind of sometimes feel like you know, the left is just so extreme now because there's nothing about their governing principles that lead to happiness or success or prosperity or freedom. It's all this weird confluence of mis- met- just craziness. I mean, imagine being a country that went from you know, building a, a nuclear bomb, landing people on the moon, uh, you know, building missile defense systems that could shoot missiles out of the sky, traveling at 15,000 miles an hour um, in the stratosphere and so forth. And now we're debating what the proper pronoun for some people is or which of the 57 genders you classify yourself as that's that's where it's at now like really that's what we've yeah. fallen to that's embarrassing yeah yeah okay uh will your thoughts um on, on what specifically so i don't i don't yeah, really yeah that's all right well i'll tell you what you can you know it's a smorgasbord so you can take what i just said and what george just said okay yeah i mean i i think that 
when you talk about the radical, so there's a lot here. I mean, there's a joke in my field, uh, political science, which is usually the one down the hallway from psychology. That pretty soon, if the sociologists and psychologists and so on get their way, everyone will be responsible for nothing they did, but everything everyone else did. And that that's kind of what you're getting at here with the idea that people can't be stopped from doing things like rioting today because of the, you know, 4% marginal impact of racism on their lives or something like that, but that we should definitely feel intense guilt about things that happened during, you know, race wars 250 years ago and so on. And it's actually funny to ask some of these questions in reverse, like, you know, did our ancestors, black and white, have the ability to make choices if, if we don't today? But I think I'm not much of a philosopher. I practically think the best line I've heard so far in the show is who speaks for the 45,000 people that lived because of effective policing. I think that to have a functional society, you have to do the things that Babylonian kings had figured out about 5,000 years ago. You need to pave the damn roads. You need to go, what was it, pave the roads, guard the borders, defend against bandits, prevent crime, and print money. That's basically, and print money in limited amounts. And that's basically what the government should do. And you can't have a functional society if the government doesn't do those things. So to some extent, a level of aggression or even amorality is necessary to be successful, truly happy in life, uh, in addition to a spiritual balance to that. So we simply can't stop functioning as a society because we feel guilty or something like that, or because someone says, well, I don't think I'm a boy anymore. That doesn't mean necessary. That doesn't mean that you're not. So reality has to play a constant, conscious, face-forward role in any society for that society to succeed. I think. I think that's what I take from the things you, you gentlemen, have said recently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, Larry. Well, I agree with the uh, comment about the lack of focus. Um, we are in a smorgasbord type of conversation here, <laughs> which, which is uh, always uh, intriguing. Um, I guess, I guess my uh, hope is that uh, S one science, uh, Senate one uh, fails and HR one fails, and that uh, the the uh, rogues do not nationalize elections in the United States, and that. Uh, the people remember uh, when it comes to voting uh, that they're uh, who, who they should be voting for and who against, and uh, and and basically, you know, we've had really rough times in the past. If you look at at the mid 1930s, for example, and the second depression starting in 1937, uh, and uh, the fact that we had to get a, into a war basically to get out of it. Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of times in our history that we've had the Civil War and and other kinds of things, and we've always survived it as a country, not not unchanged and not unchallenged, but we did survive. And let's uh, okay, hope yeah, that yeah. we'll have that uh, mm -hmm. uh, to continue. And we're just about the end of our time here, yeah, so yeah, well, I'd like to thank time, our buddy. guests. Yeah. Well, before we, another one, just want to thank our guests, but I do want to first of all give, uh, Will, uh, Will Riley has got uh, several books. So, uh, Professor Riley, okay. why don't you tell people about your books and where they can get them? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, and I don't, I don't want to step over everyone else's last minute, but uh, basically my books are Taboo and Hate Crime Hoax. I've written a couple others or contributed others, Red, White, and Black from 1776. Uh, frankly, they're all bestsellers. You can find them on Amazon. Okay, and uh, real quick, George, you got uh, Conservative Commandos. Uh, where they can they listen to that? Uh, well, obviously, and uh, it's it's broadcast over a number of uh, you know, stations around the country and on television, the AUN TV network. But you can get rebroadcast both at the AUN TV network um, and uh, also at uh, just look, you know look that up, and of course uh, at ccrshow.com. And then I, I hit up Frontiers of Freedom, and um, that's a uh, think tank, and that's ff.org. Pretty simple. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, I tell you what we're I'd like to. I'd like to. I'd like to pay tribute at one, uh, one more time to my friend uh, Don uh, Rumsfeld, who passed away yesterday, and uh, he was a great patriot. And uh, I think that the uh, this Fourth uh, of July will be somewhat diminished because of his uh, absence. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank everybody for being on the show. Thank. Uh, Will for being uh, making it, and thank you, George, for being on the show. I wish everybody a uh, happy Fourth of July, and I am going to end this. Show. We're going to end the show of the Resistance Hour with the Resistance Hour Call for Freedom by Dr. Larry himself. Our first frontier is gone. Our lands are no longer wild. Our forests and mountains and deserts no longer tease with mystery and challenge. Our lands are tamed and hogtied with railroads and highways and air lanes, bundled up and ready to be sold, filled with people, plumbing and taming. Our mines are all discovered. Our fields are cities and parking lots. Our rivers are dammed and trees cut. Our next frontier now has come. This is not the challenge of our restless youth. Alas, the newest challenge is in the voting booth, where our people must be saved, saved before we forget our past, before our enemies crush our future into poverty and despair. Our cause is great and grand and godly against evil, against long lines of starving minds and idle hands of bleeding machines and men dehumanized by greed, but most of all against the godless ones who smear our clear vision and conquer us with caresses, who also trash our laws, who waste our work and treat our people like sheep. We must go now while we can still feel, while our long lungs can still tingle with the great air fresh and big from the open sea. While we can still stand and strain and struggle, while our sinew and courage can win and send our enemies slinking home in defeat. But the battle is now. Soon we will be bundled by useless laws and petty powers, tied held helpless like our tamed land, our fight and our spirit lying in the dust, squeezed out like toothpaste from its tooth by the bonds of our land and our enemy's iron fist. Yes, we must go now. 
Now is our last chance to win, for the battle has nearly been lost already. Our enemies pretend we do not exist. Smug and snobbish in their lofty steeple, they do not believe the real Americans are gathering now to take back our land and our people. Take back our land of the free and our home of the brave. We the Americans who gave our soldiers lives for law and liberty. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, from sea to shining sea. We are coming, we are near. Our legions will fill the arena, leaving our enemies alone in fear. America's shining city will survive, our jobs and paychecks thrive, and we will keep in sacred trust our liberties and legacies alive. May God bless America, always. Amen.